Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I'm just going to present a case um, to you all, um, and I would be keen to get input from the, the expert panel in front of me. So I'll be pausing at times during the case um, to raise a few discussion points. So uh, to start this case, um, the a 60 old baby has presented to their local emergency department with a two-day history of poor feeding and lethargy. They were born at 39 weeks, weighing 3.6 kilograms, and were discharged home the next day after routine newborn baby check. At triage, the baby is noted to be pale and mottled. So at this point, this will be our first pause for discussion. So I'd just like to bring it to the panel. What is your differential diagnosis of the collapsed neonate, and what features would point you towards each differential? Well, I can jump in there, Ben, as, as the junior, and then the harder questions can go to everybody else. <laughs> um, so an undifferentiated neonate, I suppose you're thinking primarily sepsis. Um, you're wanting to know, is there any history of group B strep, prolonged rupture of membranes, maternal pyrexia? Um, you're also thinking about you know, bronchiolitis. Is there any respiratory issues here? Um, cardiac issues? And are there are there femorals palpable? Um, uh, acute abdomen. Um, is there something going on there? So there, there's many possibilities. Um, as well, safeguarding concerns. You know, has there been trauma? That may not always be detectable because there mightn't be any bruising. So is there a um intracranial hemorrhage? Um, so uh, with all of those in mind and with assured mental model with your resource team, then you have to pursue your your ABCDE um, FG assessment before sort of getting your investigations back, getting further history and then moving on to more definitive um, management and imaging. And could could someone maybe just mention then you mentioned about the ABC, what would your initial management be of the collapse neonate? Well, one of your primary causes would be hypoxia of a collapsed neonate. So um, even your simple mechanisms such as, you know, making sure you have a good or where you're in the neutral position and um, making sure you're supplementing breathing, giving 100% oxygen um, if needed um, initially before moving on to, you know, uh, circulation and assessing your circulation and putting in IV access. Peter, you have a useful um, mnemonic for, for, for these patients. Yeah, uh, Phil, happy to share. Um, recently come across it in a teaching session. If you think SCAMS is the broad differential for neonatal collapse, it's not exhaustive, but it's useful. Uh, S standing for sepsis, C for cardiac, A for abuse, M for metabolic conditions, and S for surgical conditions. So S-C-A-M-S. Anyone else have any other thoughts? So I was wondering, it might be worth looking at those five things. And at this stage, what would point you towards each of them? So we've got a surgeon here. So we'll start with the, the what would make you think this could be a, a surgical cause of the collapse in the NF brand? What would you be looking for? Green vomiting. Yeah. Uh, although there are a small number of children with ovulus that will present with non-green vomiting. Um, and in fact, no vomiting at all, but that would be extremely rare. Okay. Uh, 
for the cardiac I, patient then what would you what would you be thinking of or would make you think this may be cardiac yeah anyway? well, I, I think um one of the things with the cardiac babies i think your your physical exam is so important so uh, examining the pulses upper and lower limb pulses blood pressures saturations um history as well is important um asking whether the scans normal whether there ever any concerns um, but I think a big one that always points you in the, the right direction is a, is a chest X-ray. You do an X-ray and suddenly have a big heart on it. So it's always, I know it's a, an investigation rather than an examination feature, but it's, it's always one that I'm keen to get early on if I'm, if I'm worried about cardiac. Comparing sides as well with sats and blood pressure left and right, you know, very often you'll find a discrepancy pre and post-ductal. Yeah. If you don't think about it on the spot, you might, might miss it. Uh, uh, these babies are also so tachycardic that, you know, most babies with a heart rate of, you know, 180, 190 will have a very soft flow murmur anyway. So unless you have a very nuanced ear to pick up the louder, uh, more textbook sort of murmurs, then um, unless you check pre and post-doctoral sets, a murmur on its own, you know, might, might not directly translate into a, a definite cardiac problem. You, you actually brought another good point. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Costas, I thought you'd finished it. You brought another good point up there about the tachycardia. Is it is it a tachycardia of 240, which should be too fast for sinus? Because we do see, you know, babies in SVT or other tachyarrhythmias presenting claps. So it's worth thinking if they're tachycardic, is it actually sinus or not? Okay. I think we'll maybe need to move on just in the interest of time to get through the case, if that's okay, unless anyone else has anything to add from the panel. The only thing I suppose safeguarding is the one thing that it's easy to forget about, um, but unfortunately we do see it. So it is important to have that degree of suspicion. And it may be that there's not necessarily a, a, a sort of a clear indication, but sometimes it's just ruling out the other causes or the history just not feeling right. Um, there may be physical signs such as bruises, etc. Often there's not, and it can be just that feeling of it doesn't really fit the other causes. There's something doesn't feel right. and you need, need to have that high high index of suspicion, unfortunately, it's because it is something that we, we see in paediatrics. I think a hemoglobin on the blood gas is useful as well, just to, you know, that would be one of the things that point you towards it. And yeah. me metabolic um, multisystemic disorders, the, the last couple of kids I've seen with really high ammonias have actually presented with ventricular arrhythmias. Um, so it's again, just keeping that in the back of your mind, um, ventricular arrhythmias and seizures. Okay, so then on uh, moving on then, on further assessment in ED, um, they were noted to have a respiratory rate of 70 with an increased work of breathing and their oxygen saturations were noted to be 88%. On auscultation of the chest, a few transmitted sounds were heard. Their heart rate is 170 and their cap refill time is two to three seconds. They're felt to most likely be uh, have bronchiolitis and the pediatric team were contacted to review them urgently. Their, their oxygen saturations uh, remain low despite receiving 15 litres via non-rebreather and therefore the decision is made to start them on high flow. Unfortunately, over the next half hour, the oxygen requirement increases to 100% on two litres per kilogram of high flow and the sats remain in the low 80s. A peripheral cannula um, is inserted, an FBP, a UNE, a CRP, and a blood culture, as well as a venous gas is obtained. 
and he's commenced on IV antibiotics and given a 10 mils per kilogram bolus. The paediatric team requested anesthetic input who decide the patient uh, would likely require intubation and PICU are also contacted. So I'm going to stop here for our next discussion point. Based on the information you've just heard, is there any other investigations you would like at this point? An echo. Okay. Cardiac enzymes, please. And an ECG before the echo. So you're you're in the district general hospital and you're you're not gonna you can ask for a telelink echo, but it's it's gonna take a little while. Did you have your blood gas, Phil? Is it at this stage or later on? The blood gas is in the next stage. The next stage, that's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, so so what 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 what, yeah. what can you do sort of that you're gonna get in the next you know 15, 20 minutes to help decide? So x-ray would be a good one to look at yeah. the heart size and see what's going on in the lung fields. It could be a, a pneumothorax as well. So you get a look at the lung fields in the heart. Yeah, yeah. you're definitely going to want, aren't you? Your pre yeah. post sats and blood pressure, I think, be important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, does anyone else, does anyone in the panel have any thoughts on, on giving early PEEP via an anesthetic T piece? Is this something which you have used? Yeah, so it, sorry, go ahead, Catherine. I think for the non-anaesthetists among us working in a normal DGHED, this is a big ask uh, for a very tiny baby. Um, most of us don't have any, uh, a neopophora, um, so we would be using two-piece infrequently in a child that small, so we'd be probably asking for anaesthetics uh, first to come down. As as an intensivist, it's quite often one of the first things you do when you, you you come down to a patient that you're working fairly hard, even while you're still assessing them, because if you ask for a, a high flow or a CPAP, uh, it's going to take time. Whereas you can put a circuit onto them, pre-oxygenate, and give a, a bit of peak while you're working out what's going on. So it's 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 useful, but as Catherine says, it's it's an experienced person you'll 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 use it. Um, so I think getting your anaesthetic team involved at an early stage and, and it's a good way to stabilize the patient while you're taking them around the theater potentially for, for intubation if that's what's going to be required. It drives me mad seeing a child struggling on a non-rebreather when there's somebody standing there who could provide peep with a, with a simple bit of circuit. I wouldn't have a problem giving peep. Um, obviously, you know, it's a, a B issue here. I just uh, would need clarification on you know, the pre and post ductal stats. So were they all okay, Philip? Because we're thinking, is this a cardiac issue as well? Yeah, so we're going to move on shortly. Okay, so at this stage, we'll, we'll move on then. So um, you get the blood gas result back um, and the blood gas result, the pH is 7.24, the CO2 is 4, bicarb is 11, your base excess is minus 16, the lactate is 12, the sodium is 135, the potassium is 5.3 and the hemoglobin is 155. His cap refill time whenever um, the anesthetic team arrived, note is, is now prolonged at four seconds and he receives in total a further three 10 mil per kilo boluses of fluid. His blood pressure is also noted to be low with a MAP of 25 and he's commenced on an adrenaline infusion 
of 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute. There is minimal response to starting the adrenaline fusion, and this is increased up to 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute, um, but still with minimal effect. At this stage, you arrive as the PICU transport team, and I'm going to take another few discussion points here. We've quite a few discussion points to get through here. So whenever you arrive at this patient, what is your initial thoughts and what would be your plan on arrival for this patient? I mean, you clearly do your own assessment sure. first. Make sure they still have their own respiratory drive, their airways patent. What's the rate of breathing? I mean, it sounds like a pure metabolic acidosis at, at, at this point, um, um, you know, which takes your sort of diagnostic uh, pathway is in a slightly different direction. I'm not sure about blood pressure uh, on forelimbs and pre and post ductal SATs as yet. I don't think that's come out. That yeah. clearly is something that needs to happen from the beginning. Um, because uh, you know this child might need prostin rather than adrenaline at this junction. Yeah. Um, clearly, you need that X-ray. Um, and have a feel of that liver. What's the response to that amount of fluid? Uh, you also need to mitigate for not making things worse. So, what was the fluid that was given to this child? Um, and the other clue I would say is blood sugar, which I've not heard yet. Um, you do worry more about. Um, sepsis or metabolic conditions if this child is already hypoglycemic because they've used up their adrenal uh, you know uh, stores uh, already uh, whereas if it's a cardiac patient they tend to maintain the blood sugars and have um, a good enough adrenal response uh, in the initial stages at least you mentioned you mentioned there about um prostin when when would you use prostin in this patient and, and what dose would you start at, do you think? Uh, so blood pressure is important. Prostin is a vasodilator. If you've got no blood pressure, then it, it's not unreasonable to start a bit of adrenaline first to push that blood pressure up and then start it. Because if you start prostin on a child with no blood pressure, then you know they, they will wobble in might arrest. Um, it depends, again, if you want to intubate or not. So up to 10... Mike's um, is safe and doesn't really cause apnea that much, more than 10. And that's the reason why most cardiac centers, they can have babies on prostate of 10 in, in the, outside the ICU on the cardiac ward. Um, but more than 10, these babies tend to become apnea, so earn a tube anyway. So up to 10 is usually safe. Uh, you can even use a bit of non-invasive uh, ventilation to try and mitigate for that risk. But more than 10, you know, if you if, if there's a duct closure and you need to really work hard to open it, uh, then you need to mitigate for the risk of apneas and, and, and hypotension. Uh, so you need to be in an ICU, you need to be intubating, you need to have your lines in for your inotropes. So, so I think there, 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 there's one question that's sort of just going through my head that as the intensivist, if I was listening to this story over the phone, that I would be dying to ask them and, and I think people often get themselves into real trouble with these patients because they they're sort of maybe treating the wrong numbers can anybody think what that question is if we brought it up a few times where's the SATS probe where's the SATS probe and where's the blood pressure 
So where, where are they, Phil? Um, so they they had the the, the SAT probe um, on the on the right hand. No, they didn't. They didn't have it in the left hand, didn't they? <laughs> they had them on the feet. Oh, in the feet. Sorry. Remember, the left hand can also be preductal. Yeah. So that's why I think upper and lower limbs rather than right and left are, are more, more useful. So you, 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 you've, got your, you've, got, you've got your SATS probe and your blood pressure cuff on the lower limbs. Yeah. Can I ask a question as a ED bud who doesn't see this ever very often? How much of a difference do I expect? Because this is what we worry about missing the cardiac baby and thinking the bronchiolitis. Um, how much of a difference should I see between my... Uh, if I do my pre and my post and I change my probe position and I look for a change in my saturations to help me make my diagnosis. Yeah. So I, I only really look after these really collapsed sick patients. So there'll, there'll be a there'll be a massive difference between the two. Um this that's this this is a kid who despite all the interventions that we have done, they have continued to get worse. And in fact we're probably sped up their demise because we've we've given oxygen which helps close the duct and um, we've, we've started a massive dose of a vasopressor treating a, a blood pressure on the, the lower limb which you know you'll not be able to feel femoral pulses so there's in these patients that it's night and day when you when you move things and the situation that I often see is I, I've gone out to these patients in this exact scenario where the team have worked all the way down, started massive doses of adrenaline, massive doses of noradrenaline because they've been treating the wrong numbers. Um, so you, you, you move the SATS probe and the SATS will be 100% on the right arm. This is a, this, this is a coarct or an interrupted aortic arch that we're, we're talking about in this particular case. It'll be different for the different cardiac conditions. But you're given so much oxygen that you've closed the duct completely that was partially closing and you're treating the wrong number. The number on the lower limbs is there, there's no SATS because there's no blood getting through the duct. There's no blood pressure because there's no blood getting to it. You're using massive doses of pressors to, to blood that can't go anywhere. So when you actually measure it in the right arm, they're hypertensive and they're really well oxygenated. So it's, it's getting the right numbers, I think, at the, at the start. And one of the key bits we were wanting to get with this case is where are the SATs and where is the blood pressure cuff? And just to further that, Catherine, with regards to the, the non-experts in, in district general settings or in unfamiliar territory, it's just being mindful as clinicians about confirmation bias and diagnostic bias. And why it's bronchiolitis and much more common than critical cardiac conditions, this uh, in totality, appreciating the story, uh, a very young baby, critical bronchiolitis, where's the prodrome? Where's the chorizda? Where's the additional factors to suggest that the aggressive initiation of high flow and oxygenation may be appropriate in that setting? But if things aren't responding at an early uh, stage, like Chris is suggesting, it's having the courage of your conviction as a clinician within your team to stand back at an early stage and say, is this definitely on the right track? I agree. I, I just wanted to raise that um, on the initial assessment, um, I was waiting for the information to come out you're expecting a baby who's having a, a, an increased respiratory rate. You want to have the, a feel of those femorals. Are those femorals present? Is there a liver? Because you want to have a wider perspective, as Peter was saying, uh, of your diagnosis instead of getting fixated on the one. Um, so 
ox uh, you know, uh, low saturations not improving with oxygenation, um, uh, a tachycardia, a, a, a metabolic acidosis, all of these are pointing to something else. Um, and if you get transfixed on that one, that one thing and not, don't take into consideration all of your clinical examination um, and the salient signs during that, uh, you're going to miss a diagnosis. The other thing to say is we do, okay, well, on a regular enough basis, we see kids with bronchiolitis with a lactate at 10 pre-intubation. Um, those kids, you intubate them, and in the next hour, the lactate is 2. It just falls like a stone. And if, if, you, if, if it doesn't, then you should be thinking of cardiac. It's just you can occasionally see bronchiolitis presenting just like this, but it, it fixes quite quickly with intubation. And sorry, not to add extra caveats upon caveats, but always uh, trying to consider co-pathology and just being mindful that the critical cardiac baby can come in with a coexisting uh, trivial illness and comes up RSV positive on a point of care and actually uh, delays diagnosis. So it's just being mindful. We're not trying to add um, complexity to uh, your your uh, memorable takes from today, but just being mindful about your independent clinical assessment and continued vigilance is this the expected path that you expect and challenge yourself and your colleagues to um, to revisit that um, at, a, at a, a good opportunity uh, promptly at, at each time and consider it every five a few minutes intervals as it progresses, particularly in a critically unwell infant. Um, we, we, we talked a wee bit about prostendosin as well, and I, I think for me it always depends what you're trying to do with the prostin. And, and yes, the side effects will have you know, as you go up in the dose, you'll, you, you'll expect to see more and more of them. Um, for me, a simple recipe is five, five is a dose that you're going to start to keep a widely open duct open. Uh, 20, it would be the minimum sort of dose I would be trying to open a duct with and very quickly go to 50 off it if it wasn't opening. And, and 100 would be the maximum that I would go to. And I've had to do that a number of times to a duct that's really closed. Um, and you're trying to you're trying to get it opened again. But th another really important thing is going backwards on some of the other things that are going to be keeping that duct closed. You know, so that that hundred percent oxygen that you're given, good luck trying to open it while you keep doing that. So it's one of the things you're going to want to step back on, and um, because starting a good dose of prostum but keep it running that, and that's why it's so important to have your 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 monitoring in the right place. So you're going after the right number. That afterload that you're really squeezing with that high dose adrenaline, the, how is the heart going to get any blood out from it when you've really squeezed the afterload down inappropriately? So dropping that back is really important as well. So just to touch briefly on, I know this was brought up with um, the, the cardiac case earlier, I think this is an important point to just like to um, hear from, get your opinion, is the intubation plan for this patient then? What drugs and, and what doses would would you be thinking of for induction of this patient? I have an opinion, but I'll let somebody else have a go. I mean, look, I think intensivists, we're, we're over-glorified sometimes. We're simple beings. We like our cocktails that will uh, do the job and do it safely. And we like a couple of tricks up our sleeves in case this child goes wobbly and arrests. <laughs> To try and prevent that uh, so you know any everyone on this listening in will have heard us say we like ketamine fentanyl and rock or the ratio of one to one to one and draw them those uh, draw them twice in case you need a bit more and that's the least cardio unstable um, cocktail uh, that will cause the less le 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 least amount of vasodilation 
to to manage that. But unless you resuscitate this child before you intubate, they will arrest. So what do we mean by that? You need just about the, the, the enough amount of filling uh, uh, in terms of um, fluid. Um, you've got someone in an acidotic state already with a high lactate. So try and give fluid that's not going to cause more harm to that physiology. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, if you've got someone with a lactate of 12, if you give something that's very chloride rich, such as saline, you're going to drop that pH even more. And then you know at low pH states that your inotropes and your myocardium don't work very well. So ideally you need uh, a balanced solution such as Hartman's or Plasmalite as your volume um, to try and neutralize that pH a bit more and not make things worse for yourself. And then we may or may not have some monotrope running peripherally such as adrenaline. Um, and if we don't have that running, we will draw dilute adrenaline and give it in one milliliquat. And what we mean by dilute adrenaline is draw up the recess dose of adrenaline for that specific child, making a, make it up in a 10 mil syringe, um, and then give one melaliquot with a big flush of uh, of something after, so that it hits the right space. And then that it serves both as a chronotrope and an inotrope, uh, and it's therefore vastly superior to atropine that some people like to use, because this child will have a degree of myocardial dysfunction. So you don't just address the rate of the heart, you also address the ability to generate a decent blood pressure. And those are the basic things we do, and we do them over and over again, and therefore, you know, we can do it well enough. Uh, we're not as clever as anaesthetists that have a, a million different ways and a million different drugs to do the same job, but what we do do, uh, we do quite well. Is that fair to say, Chris? Yeah, I, I think I would do something very similar across this. Um, I'm a, bit, a little bit more stingy with the induction agents than you are. I, I would give about half per kilo of ketamine, and fentanyl is not part of my standard induction plan for, for most kids. If you know, Peter's pulling me hypertension kid would be a kid I would add the fentanyl in, but most patients I'm happy enough just with ketamine and a little bit of ketamine. Um, the adrenaline dosing, for these patients, I, I'd much rather have the infusion than the, the push dose of adrenaline. Um, because I think I'd, I'd rather have it in prophylactically rather than waiting until you, you need it. Because the, the big push of adrenaline that you give, and although it's a tenth of the dose in a cardiac arrest, it's actually quite a big dose. It's one mic per kilo. Uh, and a standard infusion, you'd be starting 0.1 mics per kilo. So it's about 10 minutes of a standard adrenaline infusion in like that. So it's, it's still quite a big dose that would put your afterload up. So I, I, my preferred recipe is starting about 0.05 mics per kilo per minute of adrenaline, uh, lower inotropic dose, not doing very much for the afterload and where it can be turned up or turned down, but would have the push dose available as well if I, if I needed it. So again, it's just it's just the subtleties. We're doing the same thing, but um, you've sort of, over the years, you build up your own recipe for, for doing it. Um, and the, I suppose the one thing with this kid is they're probably in a, a fluid overload state already because you've you've been treating the wrong number for a while. You've been thinking the blood pressure is low when it's actually high and the blood can't get out. It's got nowhere to go. So it's um, once you once you get the right numbers, you actually realize you've really overdone it with the fluid. OK, that's really useful. That was great. Um, so just to bring the case on, so the case is coming quickly to a close as time's running out. Um, so you successfully intubate the patient 
And the prostaglandin was started at 20 nanograms per kilogram per minute. Um, the four limb blood pressures notes that they're unrecordable. Uh, the blood pressure is unrecordable on both legs with the systolic of 90 in the right arm. And therefore the prostaglandin is increased up to 50 nanograms per minute. Just a final discussion point before we close. Um, how, and this is something I would be interested in, so what things are you looking for to know that your prostaglandin is working? Anybody? I'm. Co-optation, your sats are going up and you can feel your femoral. Uh, You're doing a better circulation. Um, yeah. That's it, isn't it? Um, the so blood pressure, the blood pressure cuff that was inappropriately on the the, the legs before. Um, I think once you get your arc line in, and the important thing is you want your arc line in the right arm if possible. I'll leave the blood pressure cuff on one of the legs and have it recording regularly. Uh, and then what you're looking to see is is that blood pressure improving? If that blood pressure is improving, hopefully the duct is open and suddenly you're getting some more blood to the, the lower half of the body. Um, and then it's all the general things that would show that your patient is improving a, a lactate that will hopefully be starting to starting to come down uh, and signs of improved SATs and blood pressure, particularly in the, the postdoctoral region. Okay, that's great. So just to, to conclude the case, um, you get a friendly cardiologist who um, performs the, the echo and confirms a, a coarctation of, of aorta. Um, so uh, thank you for, for everyone's input on that. Um, I certainly learned a lot just from, from working through and, and hearing everyone's thoughts. Um, does anyone else have anything else I'd like to, to add to the case or any other thoughts before we end up? Can I add two caveats to everything we've said? One is about liver and feeling for a liver. Um, now, a tachypneic baby will have a palpable liver, you know, if you, because you're just flattening that diaphragm so often that we will be able to feel a liver. So not every liver that we can feel is a cardiac case. So um, so be always be aware of that because you will have bronchiolytic babies breathing at a rate of 80 that have a palpable liver and that won't be cardiac it will be just because of diaphragm is pushing it down all the time the other caveat i would say with prostin is you need to know your side effects and i've had children newborns come in you know two three days old with non-accidental injuries and then automatically the prostin goes up but prostin apart from causing apneas really affects platelet platelet aggregation so if that child has um you know, a, a subdural or, or anything like that, you're just going to make that worse. So be be aware of your the side effects and when you use them, because uh, not every collapse child is cardiac, uh, not every collapse child is NAI. But if you use prostin in a child with NAI, you're very likely to make that bleed worse uh, whilst you're trying to help. So um, I have seen colleagues be caught out by it before. So just be very cautious. And maybe just uh, you've, you've flagged up another good learning point in me with that, uh, Costas. Um, don't be reassured by a normal cranial ultrasound. Um, if you get us a bit of a, a story, it's, there's nothing really suspicious of non-accidental injury, but I've in the past thought, okay, I'll do a cranial ultrasound of a baby with an open fontanelle. It's normal. Um, and it's only later on you do the CT and it's uh, devastating uh, damage from non-accidental injury. So I think if there's you know, a baby presenting with a with a cardiac arrest, for example, and it's a bit suspicious. I I would have a lower threshold for doing a CT now to pick that up at an early stage. 
Okay, thank you, everybody. I think on the interest of time, that's that's um, us over. So thank you, everyone.